welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. On today's special end-of-the-year episode, I look back at two interviews I did earlier in the year at the Spark Summit in San Francisco. First, I uh, look back at a fireside chat I had with Ben Horowitz, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz and author of the best-selling book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I'll also be speaking with my good friend, Reynolds Zinn, who's one of the principal architects of Apache Spark. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So Ben, uh, let's start with Spark. Um, you saw something early on and uh, you were a fan and you ended up investing in Databricks. So what exactly did you like about Spark? That, uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, when I first heard about it, it was it was much vaguer to me than it is now. Now that I like completely understand it, but in those days, there were two things that kind of triggered me looking into the investment. One is we had a company we'd invested in called Clear Story Data, which had used been using Spark, and they had been making like super fast progress in terms of developing their application. And I said, well, like, why is it so fast? And they're like, oh, there's this thing called Spark, although they think they called it Sparky, or the CEO called it Sparky. Uh, and she was like, Ben, we're using this thing, Sparky, um, and it's awesome. And I was like, wow, you know, I had to take a look at that. I started to look at it, and then kind of separately, I got a call from Scott Schenker, who is a, a professor at uh, Berkeley, who I know very well, and a very prominent professor in computer science. Um, and he called me up and he said, Ben, like, I've got uh, this uh, project that we're working on called Spark, and uh, the uh, the architect of it, Matei, he's the best distributed systems guy we've seen the last 10 years in academia. And I was like, all right, <laughs> heck, got my attention. Venture capitalist, when you hear that, you go, all right, where's my wallet? Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's how it got started. Um, so fast forward to today. So you weren't here yesterday, but there's a big announcement uh, with IBM. Yeah. And as someone who spent a large number of years selling enterprise software, that mm -hmm. IBM imprint mm -hmm. is important, right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, if you think about the world of customers, um, there's kind of customers that are that need to adopt new technology and they know they need to adopt it for a competitive advantage. But then there's a kind of much larger set of customers who have a business that's like pretty much working um, and their main thing is to not like screw that up. And so that's, that's kind of on the risk averse side of the curve. Uh, and it's very hard for them to buy something and tell a vendor uh, like IBM says, okay, this is okay. It's kind of like, think of IBM as a rabbi and it's like, this is kosher for use and um, in your company and I'm, it's blessed by the rabbi. And so now Spark is uh, blessed by the enterprise rabbi. <laughs> so uh, Spark, like a lot of the components in uh, big data is open source. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys probably hear a lot of pitches from uh, the creators of these open source technologies. Sure. Some you invest in, some you pass on. So what's your thinking and what kind of advice do you give to people who want to commercialize open source technology? Yeah, so th there's a few things. Open source is complex um, in that one, like it really helps to have uh, the kind of original authors of the open source in the company, um, you know, particularly if they're the largest contributors to the project, because the the commercial success of it is is very dependent on the the kind of continued momentum as an open source project. And if you're not careful, um, you can either one fork it, and you know, there was a lot of uh, issues in the early days with Zen Source around that kind of thing. Um, or it can just lose momentum entirely uh, if you, you know, seize too much control of it. So that's kind of challenge one. The second challenge is what is the business model? And um, 
kind of the most common business model is support. Uh, the challenge with that is um, support is a great business, a, a great business, probably one of the best businesses of all time if you're like Oracle and you have proprietary software, because in the market for support for Oracle, Oracle has a monopoly. And so they charge as much as they want and they raise money, you know, raise prices on it whenever they want and you still have to buy it. So it's awesome. Like what a great business. Uh, in open source, it's trickier um, because you're selling maintenance uh, and support, but it's not a monopoly. Um, and when it's not a monopoly, then, you know, depending on the nature of the competition and so forth, uh, it can be, you know, the pricing can get very, very competitive. And I think that um, great for customers, but tricky uh, for investors and the people running the company. So you have to have a theory on how you can uh, have enough differentiation and enough um, value add that you can still have a profitable business. And actually looking at your uh, various investments, uh, you've invested in three open source projects out of the Amp Lab, right? Mm -hmm. Spark, Mesos, and Tachyon. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also have made a variety of investments in different uh, uh, big data companies. So is mm -hmm. there a vision that you guys have for the next generation data center, big data stack? Yeah, no, de definitely so. So if you look at kind of um, our big data investments, you kind of start have to start when you start investing in a category that's been around a while. You know, Kadoop, I think, came out in 2005. Um, that like, okay, are the hard problems solved or are there still hard problems out there that we need to attack? Um, because if they're all solved and the, the new problems are incremental, then there's no need for new vendors. Um, and in the Hadoop case, uh, because it started in 2005 and the core problem it was solving was basically what are we going to do about SQL and its inability to scale, um, it kind of went forward with cloud computing of that era. Uh, and there were a lot of things in the cloud computing environment um, that weren't very well suited for big data. And so kind of MapReduce in particular worked around those. So if you kind of, you start at the network and, and at the network layer in the bad old days, uh, Cisco had this thing called the God box, right? Which was um, oriented for traffic and a data center being Northwest. So Northwest being like out to the internet and back. Um, but once you get to cloud computing and big data, like you start to get a lot of East-West traffic or within the data center. And so kind of that's the kind of first thing that had to be fixed. Um, and MapReduce sort of worked around that by saying, look, we're just going to process the data at the end nodes and we're not going to have much communication and we'll just deal with it. Um, but now, like, there are companies like Cumulus, which we invested in, which kind of make East-West traffic kind of much faster and, and much more manageable. Uh, then you kind of move up the stack and you say, well, the next thing they had to deal with is kind of virtualization and the hypervisors. And the hypervisors, you know, was a great thing if you were going to have like eight different things run on a computer, then you have a virtual machine like pretty heavyweight for everything. But if you're running a thousand nodes and they're all running Hadoop, then a hypervisor isn't necessarily what you want. You don't want like one machine that looks like 10. You want a thousand machines that look like one and that's Mesosphere. Um, and then you kind of move up to the next layer and say, okay, well, then what about storage? And of course, you know, in 2005, we're talking about disks and distributed and so forth. And now we're moving much more to kind of a hyperscale uh, memory or in-memory architecture. And so from a file system standpoint, um, memory needs to be kind of dealt with as a much more of a first-class citizen, and that's Tachyon. Uh, and then that all enables kind of a new database or a new kind of uh, interface layer where you can replace MapReduce because you've got an infrastructure uh, that kind of works around a lot of the challenges with it, and that is Spark. And then if that all sounds really complicated, uh, which uh, it probably does, um, then you can just go with Databricks Cloud, which makes the whole thing simple. And so that's my <laughs> investment strategy. Um, 
But I think the, 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 the really profound thing that happens when you move from kind of the old infrastructure to the new one is you go to, from sort of reactive batch kind of reporting to proactive real-time analytics, machine learning, and AI. Uh, and that is kind of where you get to really new, exciting applications. And we've made some investments there. So, you know, Platfora, one of the early real-time uh, analytics companies, and Adatao, which uh, is doing really fantastically interesting things with integrating machine learning into applications. Um, so that's kind of <laughs> it in a nutshell. <laughs> so it's a, a so, lot of technology to... So actually, speaking there. of the cloud, uh, people may not know, but Ben was an uh, early pioneer in cloud computing uh, with his startup, Loud Cloud and Opsware. And in fact, coincidentally, I spoke to some uh, of the engineers at both companies recently, <laughs> just coincidentally, and uh, yeah. they were lamenting just the whole timing thing, right? So if Loud Cloud and Opsware were around now, we'd be killing it, right? <laughs> yeah, darn. So, <laughs> so uh, he started AWS in 1999. So you must... You look at the enterprise adoption for the cloud. So mm -hmm. um, what are you seeing as an, as an investor? Well, so the cloud is just like one, it's a lot better now than it was when we started Loud Cloud. So Loud Cloud was like pre-commodity hardware, pre-virtualization. Um, and uh, that made the economics challenging, let's just say. And then there was the whole bubble thing, which turned out to be problematic. <laughs> um, but now, you know, the cloud, the cloud architecture is really advancing, which is making the solutions very, very powerful. Uh, but ironically, the, the kind of thing that slowed cloud adoption for years um, is the thing that's really accelerating it now, which is security. Um, and I think that, you know, what people are finding as kind of security has escalated from vandalism to theft to war. Um, that like building a, an infrastructure that can combat a nation state is not really viable for almost any company. You know, if JP Morgan Chase can get hacked, then like you're probably going to be vulnerable. And so, you know, the, the people who are dedicated to it and are hiring the best security experts in the world and running cloud computing environments, you actually, uh, you know, there's now an argument that like security in the cloud is even better. And then when you get into the big data world, well, like your data is interesting. But your data plus the data in the world on the internet is way more interesting. And so if all the data on the world is out there and in the cloud, then it starts to make sense architecturally to move your data there too. And so, you know, we're starting to see that. And um, as a result, this has been like a giant uh, year of momentum for cloud computing. You used the B word, bubble. <laughs> so are, are we in a tech bubble? You know, are we in a tech bubble? So the fact that you're asking me that question means we're probably not uh, just because a bubble is a, a bubble, an investing bubble is a psychological phenomenon. It's when like everybody believes that um, like, you know, now the world is different and it's going to continue forever. Um, that's when you get to a bubble. Um, and so if he's asking me that, that means he doesn't believe it. Um, <laughs> so we're probably not in a bubble. That's my flip answer. Uh, we we actually have a uh, a presentation on our website right now that does a very thorough like I don't know over 50 slide data analysis of are we in a bubble or not and I would just say that um, we're almost certainly not in a public market technology stock bubble if you look at it I mean it's impossible to really look at the data and say we're in a bubble in the public markets um, in the private markets you know there's a little more of an argument for it um, but a lot of the data points that people cite I think are you know, they'll take one data point and say, oh, that's a bubble. Like, oh, my God, there's more tech unicorns, meaning, you know, tech companies worth more than a billion dollars that are private than ever before. Therefore, a bubble. But, you know, if you look at it more closely, what you can see in the data is that 
companies are going public way later in their lifetimes than they used to. And so it would make sense that there would be more that are valued at over a billion dollars because they're going public when they're worth more than a billion dollars. Whereas the companies of the past, like, you know, say Microsoft went public when they were worth $300 million. And and you know Facebook went public when it was worth seventy billion dollars, and so this is this is a new world, uh, you know, which is a result of a lot of you know regulatory changes and other things. Um, and I think when you net it all out, I would say like we're probably not in a bubble yet, but there are some fairly scary signs uh, that we have to keep uh, track of. So that's good because uh, you guys keep investing in the data space and. Uh... Uh, just this morning, I was talking to you back, backstage about this interesting company, SignalOff. But uh, generally, are are there any untapped opportunities in big data that you think people are still overlooking at this point? Yeah, so I think that big data is actually far bigger <laughs> than even the hype in the following sense that it turns out that humans are super bad at making decisions, um, which I didn't even realize. I read this book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Some of you probably have read it. But like, it is amazing. So the, just a kind of short story on it is um, kind of there are two systems of thinking for humans, like instant reactions, like bear, run, you know, like that kind of system. And then, okay, here's a hard math problem, solve it. And it turns out that most people never use the second system like ever under any circumstance and always avoid it. <laughs> Uh, to the point where, like, he did this thing where he showed um, people, like, pictures of political candidates for less than a tenth of a second. And the people looking at that picture for less than a tenth of a second could predict the winner, like, 73% of the time. So people, like, picked the political candidates literally on, like, a one-tenth of a second judgment on how they look. Oh, that guy looks honest. Voting for him. Uh, and so, like, that's the current state-of-the-art in decision-making. So you can imagine, like, all the opportunities for machines to do a better job. And, to, you know, like, a really good example of, of this is uh, I was talking with Christopher Nguyen, who's the uh, founder of Adatao. And he said, you know, like machine learning, we're at the point now where we can solve like problems that have dogged us for years. If you think about blind SQL injection, which is the kind of most easy, the easiest way to break into anything, um, because, you know, somebody doesn't check their, validate their inputs uh, when writing a database application, you can just put a query in there and snatch all their data. Um, and the only way around it to date has been for every human programmer to like not make that mistake. Uh, and the chances of that happening are like zero. <laughs> I mean, like absolutely zero. Um, but with machine learning, you could have the machine take a look at the inputs and say, wow, that looks like a pretty crazy, you know, your age is like, you know, whatever, whatever, question mark, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that doesn't seem like an age to me. Uh, and could reject um, those queries kind of automatically. So that's the kind of thing that I think we can look forward to as, you know, pervasive machine learning across applications. So our time is up. I just wanted to compliment you on the book and ask you, is there going to be a sequel? Uh, <laughs> well, I could write it about like venture capital investing in the bubble. It could be called the easy thing about easy things. <laughs> That's all we got. Thank you, Ben Horowitz. Okay, thank you. You can follow Ben Horowitz on Twitter at bhorowitz. Next up, I'll be speaking with uh, Reynoldson about the rise of Apache Spark in China. Reynolds also gave a presentation on this topic at Strata Plus Hadoop World in Singapore. So the other thing that you and I have talked a lot about in the past is Spark in China. Yeah. So I think not many people know that the largest Spark clusters in production are in China. So maybe you can give us a few of these examples and the numbers are mind blowing for some of these. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Baidu actually just uh, announced today in their keynote that um, they have 
one of their largest Hadoop clusters over actually is 13,000 nodes, and that's mind-boggling. Um, I think that's probably actually the largest Hadoop cluster in the world. And they have managed now to scale the Spark clusters over 1,000 nodes, and it's continuing going up. Um, Tencent, on the other hand, actually already have production cluster um, that has 8,000 nodes on it that they run Spark on. Um, so Tencent is the uh, basically the number one social network in China. It's about a billion users, and essentially every Chinese you know um, is on Tencent one way or another. And then Alibaba, the, uh, so the three of the largest Chinese internet companies, BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Alibaba is also a very early user of Spark, actually started with uh, Spark.6. Um, and they have a lot of uh, fairly complicated workloads. It's also running. So how did so how did this happen? How did the, these uh, Chinese tech companies jump on and embrace Spark so early? I think earlier than even some of the companies here in the U.S. and definitely yeah. earlier than the companies in Europe. Much earlier. Um, so in terms of the pace of adoption of Spark, the Chinese companies are growing a hell lot faster than uh, the sort of U.S. and European counterparts. Um, I think for a combination of reasons. The first is that. Uh, um, it's actually a more fierce competition. So one example I can give is when uh, Groupon was popular. There's over 5,000 sort of Groupon-like businesses in China. As a result, they're competing in this very tight space, and they got to do whatever they need to gain an edge. And as a result, the pace of innovation and the uh, speed to pick up newer tools and better tools is actually much faster um, in China. The second is, um, I'm personally Chinese, I actually spent quite a bit of time talking to all the uh, users in China, try to evangelize, and as of now, actually, uh, it's been fairly successful that planted the seed and now it's really sort of sparking a fire um, that a lot of people are already uh, just doing the evangelism for me now. And actually, I've, in this conference here in San Francisco, I've run into many people who flew in from China. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's uh, quite a bit of them. There's also uh, even a, sort of a lot of Spark meetups that's happening in China too. And actually, even I, from what I remember, even the earliest Spark summits had speakers from China. Uh, send a lot, a lot of personal emails and invited them. Yeah. Well, thank you, Reynold, and we hope to continue this conversation in future editions of the Spark Summit. You can follow Reynold Sin on Twitter at RXIN. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.